Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, founder of Long the Tooth Podcast. Most dentists fail to plan ahead for the sale of their practice, which costs them hundreds of thousands of dollars and burdens the ones they love with uncertainty about the future. So every Friday on Long the Tooth, we share non-clinical insights from dental industry experts to help practice owners prepare for the sale of their practice today so they maximize profitability and peace of mind in the future. For all the hard work you put into building a practice, we believe that you, your family, and your staff deserve to transition after the sale into an even richer and more rewarding season of life. Thank you for joining us today. This is Marie Chatterley here, and I have Dr. Lori Kemet with me. Hi, Lori. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Marie. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Kemet grew up in Minnesota. She earned her undergraduate degree from Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, and went to dental school at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. After dental school, she served as a captain in the U.S. Air Force. In 1993, she opened her dental practice in Boulder, Colorado. And then in 1997, after running a very successful practice, she found a love for cosmetic dentistry. And from there, she met Dr. Bill Dickerson. And Dr. Dickerson founded the Las Vegas Institute for Advanced Dental Studies. Dr. Kim enrolled with LVI in 1997 and 1998 and was later asked to come back to be an instructor for LVI. She taught several courses over the 17 years that she was instructing with LVI, including full mouth restoration. She also has lectured and written many articles for journals. I met Dr. Kemet years ago and was impressed with her passion for dentistry and her love for her Boulder community. And it's been a pleasure to work with her during her transition. Dr. Kemet, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Marie. Yeah, I just, I want to say that I have thoroughly enjoyed being a dentist. I'm still practicing and it's such a fantastic profession and my heart is as a private owner. Um, it's just been an absolute joy to share my passion with other, other dentists and to help them along because we all need help at different times in our careers. So thank you for having me on today. Yes, thank you. And the topic that we're addressing with Dr. Kemet is the differences between a transition with a DSO versus an independent buyer. And she's been so kind to share a lot of her ins and outs of what's happened through the process with her in working with a variety of DSOs and independent buyers. And the first thing I'd like to hear from you, Dr. Kemet, is tell us a little bit about what you saw as the differences in working with a DSO versus an independent buyer. Sure. So um, I was approached when my practice wasn't even for sale. I was approached. And, and, and as you sort of near retirement, maybe you're, you're getting up there in years, you start to receive letters because you're on a mailing list, right, based on your age. And so I was receiving all these letters and I just kept tossing them and tossing them. Once in a while, one would catch my attention. Uh, but I knew that in my heart, I wanted to sell to a private buyer and I wanted to sell to a female because my patients are used to that. I had um, somebody come through my practice and take a look at it. And then the next thing I knew, they were in negotiations with me. And I basically said, hey, my practice isn't even really for sale. And then so I started the negotiation process with this DSO and even was sort of wined and dined. And when push came to shove, long story short, after many dinners and lots of wine, I realized that I was getting kind of pushed into a corner and I didn't like where this was leading. 
So there was just the work back conditions were going to be difficult. I was going to be working more days. They wanted me to travel to other locations. They wanted me to teach everything I knew about cosmetic dentistry and full mouth reconstruction to their employees and their employee dentists who had no um, ownership in their DSO. So they could just walk with the information. So there was really no buy-in. They wanted my name and they, again, they wanted me to drive to other locations. I didn't want that for my life. You know, I was ready to transition or start to look for a partner um, that kept my lifestyle the same. So things were really going to change. So tell our listeners what the actual structure was like, as far as what percentage were they, were they giving you a percentage of cash at close versus holding a percentage uh, with a Yeah. So, you know, COVID really drove our businesses into kind of some low points, right? And we all suffered with our production and our numbers weren't that great. They only wanted to see my 2019 return. And I was like, well, this is not an example of what my business is capable of doing. So right there, I knew something was up. And So the offer was substantially lower than what I soon found out my practice was worth. So I thought, you know, maybe now is the time for me to get more educated and find out what my business is actually worth. And that's when I reached out to you, Marie. So um, you helped me to understand that this was a ridiculous offer. Well, and it's interesting that some of your first, um, you know, proposals with DSOs, were quite a bit lower than what I'm seeing DSOs are offering in the marketplace. And so I would argue it was over by, it was under by a substantial yes. threshold. And yes. so when we look at, um, you know, offers from DSOs with the type of practice that you have, um, I do find it interesting that when you're just negotiating directly with a DSO, they're probably making an assumption that you don't know anything about what practices are selling for in the marketplace, what other DSOs are potentially offering. And in all fairness, I think they're hoping to get a few practices at a lower price point so that they can hold out for a more desirable practice that's being pushed further and further up uh, in the price. Most DSOs do pay more than an independent doctor can for a practice, but I think a couple of your first original proposals from DSOs, they weren't paying you the full cash price at close. Correct. They were just paying a certain amount and the rest of it was contingent upon you producing a certain number over a period of time. That's correct. Yeah. And um, there was even one ask for me to pay my associate out of my wages. So (laughs) their associate actually out of my wages. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So, you know, I think as dentists, we really need to be educated about what are these offers. And I'm aware of some situations where dentists just strictly don't even look at the private buyer model and they just go headstrong into the DSO model and um, they regret it later. And I'm, I'm, I've just heard story after story about that. I think you, you know about that. Yeah. Cause I think the biggest assumption is that we're going to get a higher price from a DSO. I mean, I just said that. So, and, (laughs) but the reality is, is if um, let's say a DSO is willing to pay 120% of gross collections, just, for a specific practice, well, they may only be paying 60% of that cash at close. And the remaining amount is paid in the form of a promissory note or equity ownership, or maybe a combination of both. And that 
in your work back agreement, you have to meet certain thresholds of production or the practice does, not even just the independent doctor in order to receive these remaining bonuses. So if you look at that 60% in comparison with what an independent buyer is gonna pay, it, it usually is about the same price. So the cash at close that a DSO is paying is pretty comparable to what an independent buyer is gonna pay cash at close, maybe even less sometimes. I've seen it be less than what an independent buyer would pay. But the reality is, as an independent buyer comes in and offers a certain price and there's no contingencies, you leave, you can just walk away. Um, or you can work back as an associate if that's a part of the arrangement, but there's no ties or contingencies. Um, many times if I do the math associated with a purchase, and we did this with yours, that even though a price could be substantially higher, the total price, when you really work out what this looks like in that work back agreement, so what you're gonna make as an associate um, and the cash that they're giving you at close, if you add all that up over the five year span of the work back, you would have made more money had you just held on to your practice for five years as an owner and then sold to an independent person at a lower price than you did selling to a DSO and then having this work back agreement, even though the perception was is that they were paying you, you know, tons and tons more. So yeah. perception is hard, but like you said, I like the way you emphasize getting the education is the key part because it's just hard to know when you're getting a bunch of letters and you're just talking to a couple that are whining and dining you, it's really hard to know if they're, what they're saying even makes sense, if it's a desirable offer, if it, I mean, it could all feel really nice and great, but it's hard to know if it's the right fit for you. And for you, it wasn't. But um, I think your path was one where an independent buyer just was the right fit for you to do yeah. what you've been doing to carry on the legacy of what you've created there. Yes. I did um, hear these words. There's no reason for you to talk with a broker. Uh, just think you'll be able to avoid broker fees, right? And and so that that's concerning because I, I well, if you look at the broker fee, sure, it, it could be substantial, right, for the seller, but the money comes back to you in, in the long run. So, you know, trying to get me to avoid even a broker fee or speaking with brokers, they didn't want me to because they knew that once I spoke to a broker, that, that I would start to understand why this model is not so favorable for a practice like mine, right? And so I also think as dentists who are thinking about transitioning and selling their practices, they have to, when they're getting into a, a situation with a contract with a DSO, it's very important to consult with other people, a broker or an attorney or and an attorney who really represents dentists in this sale situation. So education is super important. Um, as you're going into any kind of transition. Yes, because if someone really has a desire to transition to a DSO, I mean, any broker would not be of good service if they came in and only were able to negotiate the exact same terms that that particular person had. So the few times that I have clients that it makes sense for them to sell to a DSO, I can think of a few in this last year even where, you know, once I'm involved in it, I'm getting them more than enough to cover my brokerage fees plus some. So it's, uh, uh, I feel like it's an irrelevant conversation because that's my job is to make sure it's an advantageous deal for them if this is the route that they're wanting to take. Yeah, and as a broker, you're representing the dentist who is potentially selling or transitioning their practice. You are attempting to get them top dollar for their practice. And 
that's your job. Just like in the real estate market, a real estate broker works for the seller. And I mean, it, they don't have to, it can be a different arrangement, but that is a wise way to go because you are, you have somebody working on your behalf to get you what you deserve for your efforts of over all of those years. Yeah. And consider all the options that go along with that. Cause not, it's, it's not always just about the highest price. There's a lot of things that go within these offers, even with independent buyers that have to be considered to make sure that it's a desirable fit. And I think that that takes enough education and planning to make sure it really is a smooth transition, but also the transition that someone's hoping to have, you know, two, three, four years down the road, not just right now. Yeah. And speaking of that, I love that you just said that because two to three years down the road, we need to start thinking about it in advance before there's some catastrophic situation. Be prepared and start thinking about selling your practice two to three years before you really want to, mm -hmm. so that you start to know what is it that I really, really want. And ultimately, let me say, I think as dentists, we are not always the best savers. So going into the sale of your practice without actually having to use the money from the sale for your retirement, that can just, be, I mean, if you could look at it as sort of like, wow, this is just a bonus. I've got all this money in the bank now and I can live the lifestyle that I'm used to. I don't have to suffer after the sale of my practice. Mm -hmm. Right. I would have to say my clients that are in the situation where they didn't need to sell their practice to live off of for retirement, it does create a less stressful transition process because there's no, you're just making whatever decision makes sense for you, for your staff, your patients, for your goals. And it's not so hinged upon a specific dollar amount that has to be met. I don't say, I, it's not really everyone though. I, th I think we still have a fair number of doctors that the sell of the practice is, you know, a component of retirement, mm -hmm. but it, it is hard because like you're saying, you have to plan years out. And we usually say anywhere between one and seven years is a good window to start thinking about it, is a good window to start getting education on it. Because you do never know. I do have often clients that land on working another seven years and then five years, they say, just kidding, like <laughs> this is <laughs> the time <laughs> or three years, whatever it is. And it's nice to have all that planning done ahead of time and the education and foundation behind it. And two, when it's on your mind, you talk about it more. So then it leads to a lot of conversations with your colleagues and friends who you can have these conversations with to get their perspective and opinion on what their transition looked like, things that they wish they would have known, things that they should have done differently, or things they were happy with in the process. And having that wealth of information over you know, a span of years, I feel puts you in a better position. By the time you're ready to make that decision, you're pretty comfortable with the route that you want to take. Yeah, I did speak with some of my colleagues and learned some of the mistakes that they made. Um, and some of the, 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 the really good choices that they made too, to make the transition smooth. So um, yeah, I, I really want to emphasize how important it is to reach out to attorneys, friends, family members, and colleagues before going into a negotiation. Yeah, you bring up a good point because I, I do have a fear when I've got individuals that are negotiating directly, let's say with a DSO, and they're choosing to avoid attorney fees or something such of that nature. Uh, that, that makes me very nervous. I feel like having these key players on your side to help look after you um, and your, you know, your goals in the process is so vital at every stage of the transition. So regardless, actually, DSO or independent buyer, just having experts that can be 
around you that can look things over with you and say, hey, did you consider in the work back agreement, you know, A, B, C, and D is going to happen so that at least you're fully aware of consequences of what you're saying. I might be dropping into a little bit of a detail here, but I want to just share that one of the mistakes that I saw a colleague make was in his work back relationship with his new buyer, he was trying to work a lot and not push the production over to his over to the new owner. And I, I was like, you can't do that. (laughs) You know, this is, this has got to be a win-win and you want your new buyer to succeed. So uh, we just have to go in with, with the right perspective and be educated. And I believe brokers really help to educate sellers and buyers on how that relationship should go. Yeah. I appreciate you joining us for this segment today. I feel like you have a lot of rich background and experience on the topic of entertaining you know, what the transition looks like with the DSO versus working with an independent buyer, as well as multiple DSOs and multiple independent buyers. And we for sure appreciate your feedback and thoughts. I think this will be super helpful for anybody listening that's kind of in that, you know, window of opportunity where they're trying to decide what makes sense for them. And, um, you know, for you, the route of an independent buyer felt the most comfortable. It doesn't mean that's always the best route for everyone, but I, I like that you've shared a lot of your things you've learned and you've been open, you've opened your eyes to the way things really can look um, with a DSO versus an independent buyer. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kemet. And please listen next time. We're going to jump into another segment with Dr. Kemet regarding how workback arrangements are different between the two. Thank you. Thank you.